Welcome to Making and Breaking Social Policy, a podcast about how we collectively respond to big social issues and what this means for social and community practice. My name is Ben Lohmeyer, and I'm a lecturer and researcher in social work at Flinders Uni. Today's special guest is Luke Cantley. We are going to have a conversation about his time working at Wadley Paringa Aboriginal Research Unit in the SA Health and Medical Research Institute, uh, developing a model of care for Aboriginal prisoner health and well-being in South Australia. According to the SAMRI website, the model of care sets out the principles and practices needed to ensure culturally appropriate, holistic and safe health care in the state's prison system for the significant population of Aboriginal prisoners. The focus is on building the system within prisons that effectively identifies and treats acute and chronic conditions that often compound disadvantage and potentially compromise successful rehabilitation and release. So Luke has family connections with the Gunjamato Nation of Victoria and is a research associate located within the Social Work Innovation Research Living Space, or SWIRLS, at Flinders Uni. Through his research, Luke seeks to understand the role of Aboriginal culture and what it plays in protect- as a protective factor within the child protection system, whilst also exploring the nuances between child safety and cultural safety. Luke holds extensive knowledge on the health outcomes within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities as a result of colonisation. He holds a strong passion for advocating for increased healthcare utilisation for healthcare consumers. Luke has gained extensive experience working as an Aboriginal health worker using a strengths-based approach across diverse sectors, including prison health, primary health care, public housing, and mental health services. Luke's developing expertise includes culturally appropriate and ethical ways of engaging with community members, health and well-being assessment methods, fostering participatory action research, and social inquiries or equities. Sorry, I'm going to try that again. Social inequities generated by reducing access to service and resources. I really enjoyed this conversation with Luke. He tells a great story uh, from his time at the Wadley Paringa Aboriginal Research Unit uh, that carries through the rest of our conversation uh, that shows not only how dominated the prison space is by social policy, but also opportunities for change and resistance. Uh, the obvious ways that this works in a prison system also help us to see the implications uh, for policy and practice and how they play out in less obvious ways outside of prisons in places like community services. We recognise that Flinders Social Work operates on the traditional lands and waters of the Ghana peoples and we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge their sovereignty and continued responsibility to care for country. So, Luke... Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. Thanks, Ben. This is really great. I've been looking forward to this. We've just been chatting about how excited we are. So good. All right. Um, so you and I both work as part of the social work team here at Flinders. Yep. Uh, and we're having a chat today because we were recently talking about decolonizing social work. Uh, and so particularly the social policy topics that um, I've been teaching as well. Uh, so I was asking you a few questions about where you'd worked before here doing that kind of typical yeah, get-to-know stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and we were, you were telling me a little bit about some of your different roles, particularly around uh, Aboriginal health as a researcher uh, and health promotion and, as well as service delivery. Uh, and I was just blown away some, by some of the stories that you were telling. So I really want to hear yeah, some sure. of the stories in particular. Great. Uh, but I kept thinking about how important the work you're doing, but also how often it's closely tied uh, to like the latest government initiative or um, you know, there were also... 
these long-term, um, you know, compounding social issues that are in and around us. So there's just there's so much in there to unpack and then to try and also think about the um, the meaning for all of that for human service practice. Sure. Uh, and the quote that kept coming to mind for me is from a book called uh, Social Policy for Social Change uh, by Barbara Forster, Susan Goodwin, Gabriel Maga, and uh, Ruth Phillips. And the quote goes like this. It says, uh, in this approach, social policy and human services are considered inseparable. Uh, social policy makes and breaks human services, uh, and human services make and break social policy. So this is the idea that kind of social policy often funds and gives direction to practice or not, you know, not fund, and sometimes yeah. not give good direction, sure. uh, but also can clash with what good practice actually looks like as well. And at the same time, our practice can kind of conform to policy and therefore make it work, uh, or also find subtle and humanizing ways to resist or break the intent of social policy. So that's kind of what I wanted to chat about today. You know, how, do, how does this interaction between social policy and practice make and, and break each other? How does that sound? Yeah, you're sure. No worries. <laughs> just, little, little topic. Just, just a little one. Yeah. yeah. Not <laughs> ambitious at all. Ah, oh, great. Um, yeah, so let's start uh, with uh, talking about perhaps your some of the work you did at um, Wally Paringa uh, Aboriginal Research Unit, which is part of the SA Health Medical Research Institute, um, most often called SAMRI. Uh, um, you were involved in a project that was about providing uh, South Australian prison health services uh, with a model of care that attends to the broader needs of the Aboriginal adult population in prison. Uh, within the, kind of the nine prisons in, in South Australia. So that must have been a fascinating project. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your experiences? You know, what's some things that stuck with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, firstly, it was a super fascinating project. Um, I was practice-based at the time, working as an Aboriginal health worker, so carrying out health assessments in the homeless sector. Uh, and then this opportunity came along to, to have a look at what was happening in prison health and starting to be having a bit of exposure to what research is. So it was certainly something very new for me in terms of working in a research space. Um, and uh, this project definitely introduced me to qualitative and quantitative research methods um, and also gave me some further understanding around how population health can occur, not just at an individual level, but across populations and subgroups you know, within the prison system. Okay. Um, so I was super excited to take on the opportunity. Um, I'd never worked in a prison system before then, so um, there were certainly some anxieties and some yeah. some, some concerns I had about uh, how to how to function within the system. For sure. Um, but again, I was just running with that thought of I'm really keen to learn what's happening here, mm. um, and I really want to see how healthcare is delivered to the Aboriginal population. Um, so when I first commenced my position. Um, accessing prison sites occurred um, under a visitor's pass. Okay. So you have to ask corrections officers, can you take me here? I've got to go there. Yeah, right. Can you wait to bring me back? And so, of course, I was really popular, you know, so <laughs> yeah. pulling people away just so they could walk me to somewhere. Great. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they loved yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. Great was not the answer that they had. <laughs> but um, after a few weeks, you get what's called a level two clearance. So that means okay. you can access any site anywhere, anytime. Um, uh -huh. And like, by, like you could walk into a prisoner's cell, like like that much clearance. Wow! 
Only um, after a couple of weeks. It, it was, um, I think I was pretty lucky because there was no other applications at the time. Right. So right. I'm sure it might be a bit more of a process if there's more people, but sure. I reckon I was the only one on the shop that day, so they were like, let's have a look. No worries. But uh, what that then means is you don't need visitors pass, you don't need escorts. So they were like, oh, you've got your level two clearance, off you go. And I'm like, well, I have no idea. Just wander around like, in the prison. Yeah, I don't know where to go. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so many times I got lost, you know, and there isn't people just wandering around so you can ask for directions back to where you've got to be. Sure. Um, and there's a little bit of, I'm sure they like to just see how, how deep you dig a hole, like how far is he going to go here? So, you know, you'd be in these spaces, you know, like I've never seen this room before. Like, I'm not meant to be, what is this, you know? So that in itself brought some challenges and some complexities. So, um... Because I assume that they're watching, right? Like, oh, absolutely. prisons, hundred percent. They know yeah. that this Luke's just wandering around. Yeah, he's yeah. clearly lost. Yeah, he's clearly <laughs> lost. Um, you know, so quite often there'd be a site shut down or something, so there was no access to prisoners. Or, you know, so I'm still talking with people, so I still need to get around. But you know, they're just watching. Wow. And, and I'm just like, well, some of the sites, so you could sort of map out a pathway and you could sort of see where you're going, but. Each site is different. Each site is a very large place. Each site has their own way of doing things. And yeah. so you, you just get lost. And I never even, I don't even think at the end of the project, I still knew how to get around all the sites. <laughs> so. And that's you coming in with a whole bunch of resources, right? And that disorienting experience. Imagine what it's like being Absolutely. incarcerated there. Yeah. Like it would yep. be that and much worse. That was conversations that we had on the regular. Is his. Yeah, wow. If this is what I'm experiencing as a prison health employee um, with resources and knowledge and the understanding that I'm there to look at systems and structures, so mm. you'd assume that they want to cooperate and be involved, mm. what's happening for prisoners that have, you know, maybe their first time or, yeah. you know, they've got stuff going on. And so you're in this space. Um, the other thing I was going to mention was mm. Mount Gambia is privately run. Right. So they declined to be involved in the project. Okay. Um, and so talking to prisoners at the time, they said that being transferred to Mount Gambia felt like a whole different system, mm. ways of doing things, and it was quite a disconnect. Mm. And uh, you know, there's barriers to that continuity of care. So um, I certainly found that as, a, as an employee, just trying to get an understanding around what's happening and you know, what do we need to do to improve some things. But um, yeah, it was certainly interesting in those first couple of weeks. Um, across the time, visiting the so the eight out of the nine sites that I went to, um, I, I got to speak with senior members of staff, so the nurse unit managers of the health system. I spoke to the prison site managers, so the most senior people you'll find on a prison site. Wow. Um, and then ranging down to the ALOs, nurses, correctional officers, and, and current prisoners. So it was a fascinating experience to get an understanding of how people think prison health services are being delivered at different tiers mm. and having different access and knowledges to how that's working. So, yeah, wow. So you really got to span across the whole picture and connect up in a way that I imagine few other individuals within that system actually get to connect the dots. Absolutely. I think that's what made the project so unique um, and a point of difference was that um, I had my level two clearance. I had I had you know, things to achieve, but you know, you had time to just be immersed in the site so you know like today I'm, I'm going to Yatla and I'll be there all day you know and so you, you'd see 
uh, prisoners being transferred to different things, coming in and out to the health service for different things, and then you know you could just follow staff and see what they're doing. So yeah. having that real opportunity of just having an understanding of what's happening in the prison system across those different tiers. Wow, wow. So. Um, and of course, going to the different sites, so I was exposed to maximum security sites, medium security, low security and pre-release sites. So getting a real understanding across those different uh, security ratings around how things happen yeah, okay. and really observing a difference in behavior and policies and approaches across those different standards. Yeah, so okay. certainly in a maximum security prison, there isn't uh, you know, the, the freedom to wander and have a look around like you're meant to be somewhere, there you go. Mm. Whereas some of the other sites was more freedom and population to move around and do what you need to do, especially when you're progressing towards pre-release uh, to release stage. Mm. You know, there's a more of an, an expectation that you're taking ownership of what's going on for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's uh, a there's a sorry to interrupt. Sure. It's just a, a really obvious connection there between what you're saying and, and this kind of theme about making a breaking practice, right? So you know, it's quite clear that in some sites. You know, the policy is much more restrictive than other sites. Absolutely. And you would think that your kind of principles as a human services worker, a nurse, social worker, whoever, and that, well, they're not going to change based on your site, right? But your practice does change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. What, what is possible in that space. So it really is making or constraining or changing the way that you work, the policy for different sites. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, the responsibility is on you to understand where you're at and what's required. So, um, and then, like as I said, um, prisoners are often they'll come into an intake site. So that's Yatla, which is maximum security, Northern Adelaide, or Mobilong, which is medium security, Murray Bridge. Um, so they're intake sites. Um, and then, depending on how long your sentence is and bed flow and all that stuff, you'll be then pushed out to different sites for, right. for whatever it might be. Sure. Um, and then some of the lower security sites, um, there were often stories about fellows who were so close to finishing up and then they just were like, well, I'm, I'm going to do a runner. Oh, and no. then you're like, oh, so you're going to go back to maximum security now and you're no. going you're not, you're not to get your early release. You're going to serve your whole sentence, you know. And so, um, and again, that's, that's probably a story for another day, but that's yeah. definitely some stuff we can talk around, you know, what's happening there in terms of policies and the impact that's having on individuals. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, yeah, you often were just moved around, and so it was your expectation that you pick up where you are and what you're doing. So when you're saying um, the responsibility, you were talking about the, the prisoner's responsibility. On the individual level. Yeah, you yeah. have to know yeah, what's yeah. happening there. Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a big expectation. Like you said, yeah, the massive. spaces are already disorienting, and, and you know, you, in some ways, at the end of the day, you get to go home, right? Yeah, yeah. These guys yeah, yeah. stay there. This is, so. their, this is their life. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, I think my favourite site was Cadell Working Farm. Okay. So that's out in the Riverland, um, and that's exactly what it says. It's a working farm, and so everyone there is you know, months away from being released. Right. Um, and so there's a citrus farm, there's a dairy farm, um, which people express interest and go out and work on there to get some skills and okay. you know routine. There's the the local CFS volunteer team, were just a bunch of prisoners from the prison. So if the you know the siren went off, they'd get out of bed and drive off in the middle of the night to go and fight a fire or wow. whatever. Um, and there was another team that went into town to mow lawns or you know maintenance or tidy up or whatever. So they were getting practical skills yeah, wow. um, and starting to look at what life looked like post-release. So, mm. um, and that was certainly a site where you could just show up and they'll be like, you know where you're going? Look, all right, off you go. And then so you'd just be wandering through and it'd just be like, just prisoners would be all around you. Yeah. And uh, they'd be like, oh, you're right, you know where you're going? You know, they'd be, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, where there'll be other sites where if you're in a room with a bunch of prisoners, you, you're sweating bullets. You're like, how's this <laughs> going to play out? So, sure. 
Um, but um, I think reflecting on the question, I've got a story I'll share with you today that right. um, I'll talk about themes across all of today, about mm-hmm. how there is, I guess, the, the grass of social policy playing its role um, negatively and positively, um, and then sort of knowing what we know now, what could be done differently. And so um, this story I learned from the nurse unit manager um, and uh, it still sits with me today, actually. It was quite significant. So it's about a, a woman who uh, was living north of sort of like out past Port Augusta Way, so quite remote. Uh, four children, eight months pregnant, uh, driving to just a specialist appointment to talk about, you know, what's happening with her, with her soon-to-be-born child, um, pulled over uh, and arrested for driving without a license. So, yeah. Offence was committed, you know, there has to be some kind of, you know, post-reaction or result of that. Mm. Um, but interestingly enough, this woman was incarcerated, so weeks from giving birth. Wow. So um, that meant all four of her children were placed into out-of-home care. Oh, wow. Um, and then, you know, so this mother was in control and then looking at giving birth in prison. So you can see how trauma is starting to compound for the mm. children and for the mother. Mm. Um, and what's quite interesting is... There are no facilities in prisons here in South Australia to give birth. There's no birthing units anywhere. So what right. happens is um, women go to the Royal Aid Hospital, okay. they give birth, and then the child is removed at birth and they return to the prison site. Wow. So you can see that this lady is starting to think, you know, my four children are in care, I'm about to give birth, I'm potentially going to lose my fifth child to, you know, to this yeah. this situation that I'm in. It's a full-on result um, for, like, what is seemingly a pretty yeah, yeah. minor infraction, Absolutely. Right? Driving without a license. Obviously, it's a problem, right? I'm not saying yeah, you yeah. should drive it, but it's it, a full-on result. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, so this woman's facing all these things, you know, looking at, you know, what does this mean for me? You know, and it's just quite this massively high-end reaction to, you know, something that we could potentially look at different ways. Yeah. So what I did learn in the system or in this project was it costs around a thousand dollars a day to incarcerate someone. Right. So you know, here's this woman being incarcerated for a thousand dollars a day, and so I started to think over that time, and even to this point, I'm like, well, what could we do differently with a thousand dollars a day? And I'm like, surely we could look at increasing a person's capacity. Could could there be the potential to you know find a community service, whatever it might be? But then, could we look at doing a driving course in that town? Could we look at doing transport in the community? Could we provide funding for a service to provide transport for the individual? So then, therefore, she's not required to drive without a license. So uh, we know that healthcare access is a massive thing within the Aboriginal population. So she's trying to do the right thing and you know get some get some care and some things in place to have a successful birth and is penalised to the absolute maximum. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, so this is the story that I'll refer to yeah, wow. throughout today. That's a really powerful story, man. And yeah, that's, <laughs> I reckon for a thousand dollars a day we could get her a license. Like, oh, I think, absolutely. I think that's achievable. I think, I think absolutely. <laughs> that might be a better response. But you're just so yeah, constrained by what's required by policy and law. Yeah. Is, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how this, this story unpacks a little bit over the next couple of questions. All right, so the next question I want to ask is about the model of care that uh, was being developed you know, during your time there with the, um, with the unit in Samarit. And it's designed, as I understand it, to kind of feed into the Department of Correction Services' strategic uh, 
policy uh, panel report about reducing offending. So it was planned to reduce by 10% by 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also you know, contribute to some of the recommendations from the Royal Commission uh, into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So can you tell us about a few features of the model? What Absolutely. are we talking about? Sure. Um, so when you look at the model, you can see a circular arrow. I'm going to have to include and a so, picture of the model yeah, uh, with the show can, notes, I think. I'm, that's I'm right. sure we can do the link at the end, that's <laughs> yeah. fine. So what this represents is an individual coming out of community through the incarceration system and then back into community. Right. So the most crucial element of the model is that a prisoner must be seen as a person throughout their incarceration. So when you become incarcerated, everything that you and I take for granted in the community ceases. So... You know, you lose your job, you lose Centrelink payments, mm-hmm. you lose access to Medicare. Um, if you have a housing SA property, your, your tenancy ceases. So mm-hmm. absolutely everything stops. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're, you're now a part of the system. So um, you can certainly see how the lady in the story that I'm talking about has now lost her children, is looking at facing a fifth child being removed, and everything that she has in place in the community now no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So... We were very mindful in our model that we need to start looking at these things. Um, and one of the most bizarre things that we came across when we were talking to everyone in the prison system was that pre-release planning doesn't occur until almost at the end. Oh. So you need to re-establish all these things. Mm. Um, and then for security purposes, they don't tell you when you're going to your court case. So you wake up in your cell one day and instead of going to your job or to whatever you've got on, they'll say, Ben, you're going to court in an hour. Wow. And then you might go to court and they'll go, sentence served, released. And so then you're walking out the front door. Whoa. (laughs) And then you're just like, because of course you're like, well, I'm not going back to that place. That's so traumatic. Yeah. And so then, you know, what do you do? Yeah. So, um, and one of the most frustrating things I found in one of the prison sites was they'd be released that day and then they'd say, one of your bail conditions is you're not to be seen in town. But they might be released on a Monday and then the, the bus that was taken back out to Central Australia wouldn't come to Thursday night. So, of course, they've got nowhere to go. They're sitting around and then they get picked up again. Yeah, of because course. Because where, where are you going to go? Yeah. And so they're like, well, you've breached your bail, back in you go. So we were like, well, surely we can avoid, we can avoid this. There's, there's some things to do. So the first key element of our model is pre-release planning starts from the beginning. So mm-hmm. from day one, you start to talk about what do you need to get out? what What's waiting for you? Can I just quickly say, like, I was thinking about on that, you mentioned housing, for example, and, and if you've got an SA housing you know, place. The waiting list for that is years. Decades, I mean, yeah. Yeah, sorry, decades. decades. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so even starting at the start, unless you're serving a very long sentence, it's almost too late already. But yeah, the, the idea right. that yeah. you would do it at the end is madness. Correct. So a big part of my job working in homelessness was working with people who were post-discharge prison who wound up being homeless because they're like, well, where do I go? And we go, well... And so then there's there's this theory around, you know, there's all these support services. You know, you get a house and then you get out there and it's a tough world and, you know, there, there's budget restraints, there's social policy in place, either making or breaking outcomes. Um, and then the, the social policy, the social housing policy indicates that, you know, 20, 30 years. So, um, yeah, you can really start to see how it starts to build up and that, you know, people are really set up to fail mm. or often would reoffend because it was just easier to go back into the system because it is a place to sleep. There's a place to have something to eat. You yeah. can get 
access to healthcare. So yeah, we were pretty much like, well, you know, regardless of whether you're here for a month or you're here for ten years, that day will come where you need to look at something. So what what have you got? So we were starting to talk about that. That there's a massive that disconnect from community, mm-hmm. and then that sudden that sudden release from court. So I know that the system will never change how they do that because they're worried about keeping things. Um, you know, tight locked in for security purposes. You don't want people having too long ahead to know that they're having a hearing um, for a, a raft of reasons. But um, we're saying, you know, what can we do to have people have conversations around what do you need? Mm. Um, and we started talking about things like, you know, checklists. Like if, you, if you've if you got a court hearing coming out that day, give someone a checklist so you can walk out and be like, hey, have you got a bank card? Have you got your healthcare card? Um, a big thing was... Uh, communication back to GP services like have you got your discharge summary like all these things but because you're just like I'm so keen to go they just leave and walk out the door so um, yeah the next recommendation or the next element that we talk about is culture spirit and identity uh, we there was massive disconnects between what was happening for prisoners and what we know should be happening in terms of cultural sensitive services and approaches so um there were often stories around um, Aboriginal men coming into prison sites and then female nurses doing their intake assessments. So that that involves a lot of like touching and asking questions around health. And sure. So there was massive underreporting around what people's actual health concerns were or what was going on because they didn't feel comfortable talking yeah. to to the, a female nurse. Makes sense. Um, and then you know, of course, prison system is it is what it is because it needs to be so there, there isn't any connection to culture there isn't there isn't programs you can go to um, but a lot of places we're starting to bring in things like nunkeries which are like traditional healers or counsellors or having fire pits like they were talking about having spaces where people could come together because they do recognise that culture is a protective factor yeah well wow. um, and unfortunately due to the statistics a lot of Aboriginal people who did have family members so um being able to just link with family and talk about culture was a massive protective factor. Mm. We certainly did see long-term uh, issues and impacts with being removed from country and not having access to culture, um, having an impact on emotional, social emotional well-being of prisoners. Yeah, wow. um, and uh, yeah, also having sort of that culture appropriate practice within the workforce was something that we were talking about. So, yeah, wow. Um, Communication was the next thing that we were discussing. So um, communication with patients was really limited. So it was often just like, I'll put in a, like a request to come and see you because my, my teeth hurt or shoulder or whatever it is. And you wouldn't know until that morning, right, you're going in. So you wouldn't know unless you know that, that you had an appointment. So you'd go in there and then you'd go and see whoever it is. And then often feedback was pretty minimal. Um, and... Um, what we found quite perplexing is there isn't any conversations. As I said, everything ceases in the community. So that includes your GP service. So any, anything that you had in terms of investigations or treatments or medications before going into the system, there was no record of. And if you developed an illness or a condition, a chronic condition whilst incarcerated, unless you remember that little discharge summary on the day that you were leaving, there was nothing to indicate investigations or treatments in your prison health system. Wow. So, so the two systems are connected yeah, in any way. Yeah, they don't talk to each other at all. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were like, well, 
there's a huge disconnect. How's the continuity of care going to happen there? Yeah. You're going to have a fellow who's like, oh, I've been incarcerated for a year. I was taking some tablets. I don't know what they are. <sighs> you know, and so then they're either going to have to ring around or you're going to have to do investigations. And, you know, if it's treatment for, you know, a, a range of chronic conditions, you don't really have the luxury of just ceasing medication use. No. So we were a bit like, that's that's crazy. We should, you yeah. know, you should be talking about that. Um, and so then that started to lead into our access and continuity, which was a, a massive part of what can we do to make sure that the two systems are talking to each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was just still something even to this day that I'm just like, well, we know that continuity of care is important. That, you know, if you're talking about a person who didn't have a, a really good induction because of whatever reason, and then they finally come around to talking about it and then they're discharged, what are we doing? Like, how does that person's, like, their health and their life continue? So Absolutely. <clears throat> oh, man, I just... I'm blown away by that because, like, I don't, I don't remember all my <laughs> medications yeah, no, and, yeah. and whatever. Like, there's yeah. a reason I have a consistent GP because right. they have yeah. it all on file, and yeah. that's great. Absolutely. Uh, if, yeah. if that wasn't there, yeah, I fully wouldn't remember all the scripts. You know, follow-up appointments, blood tests, yeah. all these investigations that could have incurred in the system whilst incarcerated isn't sitting there for you. Yet. So, Crazy. Uh, absolutely. Um, our next element was family. So the role that family plays um, was massive. We understand that you know if you're incarcerated, you know you lose that connection. That's the design. But um, we thought it was really important for Aboriginal population to maintain connections to family. So you'd often hear stories about visiting day nobody would come or they don't make phone calls, um, or like especially younger fellows are really seeking connection to their family and so if they were in a detention centre they'd be committing crimes that would then get them transferred to Yatla because they know that uncle's there or we've got right. cousins or um, just these things that are going to perpetuate their involvement in the system um, and continue to increase in statistics and all these things just because they're seeking a connection so mm. um, it was quite a big thing for us uh, mm. and then that links into the grief and loss that's associated with that so yeah um, there isn't therapeutic services that are offered in a prison system so um, they will wait for the situation to exacerbate and then to you you have risk increases and then you're just isolated Right. So instead of having a, an early intervention to avoid a massive mental health episode, you, you, you're isolated, which then will contribute to what's going on for you and your grief and loss. Mm. Um, and really looking at how culture and family can play a protective role you know, to avoid this whole thing because that's going to be a lifelong trauma that you have forever. Yeah. So, that's really interesting. I mean, there's a few more elements to the to the care plan model and I don't want to jump in but I was just kind of thinking about it the way you're describing here in terms of the problems of the way the system is designed you know and you're acknowledging that some of these problems are inherent to the system mm. right like sure. you, the disconnection is almost the purpose of that's the right. system yeah, that's right. yep. but it becomes a question well what is the purpose of this system right? absolutely what are we yep. trying to achieve through that's the right. system yep. part of it is keeping people safe which is you know disconnecting but part of it is also about preventing crime or, you know, trying to reduce harmful experiences. And it seems pretty clearly <laughs> this is not achieving that, It's, it's right? not achieving, It's yeah. doing the opposite of that Absolutely. in many cases. So, yeah. yeah, it's a really important insight, I think, into this kind of question that comes up in this, this topic around social policy. You know, what is the problem? You know, what is it 
that we're trying to fix and how is the problem, the way we're responding to it, responding to the problem, actually indicates what we actually think the problem is or, or, you know, the way the problem is being imagined or represented. And it's kind of being represented as something that I think is very disconnected. Your your model is showing us from people, from what people actually live like. Where are you living? What do you need? Absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, then we start talking about things like flexible pathways and like recovery and rehabilitation therapy. So we were having conversations around why can't a GP have an in-reach service or why can't you feed out to a GP? Mm. Why aren't you investing in therapeutic services? Surely it takes more resources to isolate someone and to watch them over them whilst their risk is higher than it would be to have a program once a week. Mm. So... um, yeah, very, uh, very old ways of thinking and very yeah. concrete. Yeah. So, um, and then our final element was patient is linked to community services. So um, whilst incarcerated, many people weren't disclosing that they had problems with their teeth or that their foot issues or whatever it might be because lim- the services are limited. So you have to be transferred to, say, Yatla to come to the Royal Aid Hospital for something. So there was a story of a fellow that was in Port Lincoln he had to come to Yatla via Port Augusta down to have someone have a look at his heart. But that meant he lost his cell and his position, his workplace, so he couldn't earn money anymore and that sort of thing. So a lot of people weren't declaring that wow. um, that this was a problem because of the, the impact. Yeah, okay. So creating access to you know, healthcare and you know, barriers to healthy outcomes. So, so just to go back and make sure I, I captured that probably, you, you're saying that there was a guy who was in a different prison yep. who then had to be transferred to Yatla yep. to then be able to go to the Royal Adelaide. Correct. Yeah, so he was in Port Lincoln. And so that involved an overnight trip to Port Augusta and then Royal Aid, uh, to Yatla for the Royal Aid Hospital. Right. And then you go back up and then you come back to Port Lincoln, but you, then you're assessed as a new prisoner. So then you don't right. go back to your cell, you don't get that job again. Everything that you've worked for is removed. Wow. So people were, were taking the option of not declaring... Of course. Yeah, because they wanted they wanted their conditions. Yeah. What, what they'd worked for. So we started talking about like, well, we know there's a dentist in Port Lincoln. Why is he Why is he coming down? Like, can you just establish working relationships? Absolutely. <clears throat> Especially if the person's from Port Lincoln, like they'll probably go to that dentist. Probably know them anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah why Why not? Yeah. And yeah, they were just like, hmm. so. Oh wow. <clears throat> so yeah. that, that's the model. That's the model. Yeah. Can you? Can you take us back to the story you told us before and tell us a little bit about how having something like this model might have made a little bit of a difference to that story? Sure. I actually think that might be the next question anyway. Yeah, great. Let's just do it. Um, anyway, so if we reflect on the model and we, we talk about all these elements that we've just discussed, looking at that scenario with the mother who was incarcerated for not for driving without a license, mm. Um what happened? What happened in that sentence? So what I can tell you, what I do know is alternative options were sourced. So the nurse unit manager was like, I am not having this person give birth, have the baby removed, and then have the trauma of that and her four children all in an avoidable situation. Mm-hmm. So under that scenario, they had the possibility or they had the powers to arrange release and place on home detention. Right. So the, the mother was placed back in her home. Wow before the, the tenancy was terminated. So you do get a couple of weeks grace with housing, I say, so, because these things do come up occasionally. Sure. So the family was reunited, all the children came back, um, 
and then the mother was linked into community services or health systems in the, in the, in the community and, and gave birth in the community and then was able to, um, you know, have her family with her. Yeah, correct. So, um, you know, having a look at how we can do things differently and, you know, what is the policy that needs to shift here for the better or, you know. So um, I know that there are conversations being had now about building a birthing unit in one of the prison sites, so right. probably the, obviously the, the women's prison would make most sense. Yeah. Um, and I know that prison sites interstate have facilities where mothers can be incarcerated with their babies. So okay. if you give birth or you've got a young child, you know they, they can put you in a facility where you remain with your child. So mm. um, quite progressive thinking, especially in a system that's been set the way it has for for many, many years. Yeah. Um, and a really good example of how we can shift some social policy around better outcomes for, for women and children and families overall. Mm, okay. Um, I think the last thing I'll add on this one is reflecting back on our model and the, the mother and her children. Yeah. Um, several key features of our model were, were implemented in this scenario. So we're looking at things like flexible pathways, being linked into community services, um, and acknowledging the role the family plays to avoid that trauma and grief. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, man. I mean, it just it makes so much more sense that the mother would have access to you know a regular GP and regular care in the community because she's able to give birth there rather yeah, yeah. than in, yeah, yeah. in prison. And and that even in a, in a model where, um, like you say, that potentially you have a birthing unit in the prison and the mother and child can stay together mm-hmm. for a while. Unless you address some of those other issues like the continuity of care records, it's still going to be not oh, quite absolutely. Up the standard, yeah, right? yeah, it's but, not a, it's not a perfect system, but it's um, it's certainly progressive for what yeah, it is. So, yeah. and it seems so obvious that you could just be like, "Hey, here's a discharge summary or a weekly update, or you know, if they're there long enough, here's a monthly report of what's been happening." Yeah, you know? yeah. So it wouldn't take much. No, that's right. Yeah. But I can also see how those different elements are all connected as well. It's together that would make a significant difference to someone's experience. Absolutely. You yeah. Have, you yeah. Know, it almost makes no sense to do one part without the other yeah, in some yeah, ways. You do, you do need to have the all working parts to have the whole new approach um, to make a traumatic situation of being incarcerated sort of more workable. You know, like yeah. you do... If you do need to be there, then that's what needs to happen. But let's make sure things continue for you post-discharge or happens for you whilst you're incarcerated so that the fundamental things like your health still continue and yeah, you don't deteriorate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm, okay, so that kind of policy as well can give you know, like a lot more space to make services to human services uh, you know, much more principled and based on frameworks and, and, and theory that tells us about people's real experiences and how to recover well and how to Absolutely. avoid trauma. Yeah. So this kind of policy change can really make the difference sure. between, you know, when you're going to do something that perhaps creates more harm or, you know, something that hopefully does a little bit of good. So that that's really clear. But I also hear in part of your story, uh, you said, I think a nurse manager advocated for this person. Absolutely. And so here you've got an individual who's almost breaking breaking the policies, maybe overstating it, but resisting, you know, mm-hmm. finding ways to say, actually, no, this is really important and we should push back on this. And, you know, it's your role as a human service practitioner and a nurse in this instance is to go, hang on, that policy is not working. We do need to find a better way. Yeah, for sure. So that's a pretty cool yeah. part of your story. That's well. quite unique, actually. It doesn't happen yeah. that often. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. 
Great. Okay, so that's really, really great, man. I mean, I'm really. Uh, there's so many, so many parts to this that we could explore in so much more absolutely. depth. And yeah. you know, we, you and I were chatting on the way down here that we probably should do about seven other. Yeah, know, yeah, episodes. absolutely. We could just do a weekly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We'll just unpack all the bits of it. Uh, but we, we probably should uh, today because we've already been chatting for a while, which is great. Um, but I would have one or two more questions yeah, for you. Um, so, how do we think about? Because, uh, like you said, this system has been around for a while, but also the, the history of um, uh, Aboriginal people's experiences in custody, but also more generally in Australian history, is, is all tied up in this, right? So, um, how do we how do we think about that, or how do you see this history tied into these kind of Absolutely. social policies? Yeah, sure. Um, we, we know that Aboriginal people are being incarcerated at much higher rates than non-Indigenous Australians. Um, further to this, we know that Aboriginal people make up around 3% of the total population, however, contribute up to 29% of the, the prison population nationally. Wow, blows my every Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just staggering. Yeah. So, and if you think about things like being arrested for driving without a license, you know, um, how, how much do these numbers truly reflect the need to be incarcerated? So, yeah. Um, furthermore, this, we know that there is a Royal Commission into deaths in custody. Uh, this commission was established to understand why so many Aboriginal people die whilst incarcerated. Mm. Um, two decades later, there are still examples of black deaths in custody. Yeah. Um, even with the 339 recommendations from the Royal Commission and the recommendations from our model of care uh, that lay out a roadmap to how to provide appropriate care and how to provide healthcare services, um, even essentially with culturally sensitive care, how to reduce numbers of recidivism, uh, all these things that clearly state that we need to be doing things differently, yet mm. they still continue to be the way that they are. Mm. Um, I remember talking to a, a trainee correctional officer one day at one of the sites, and he was telling me about how he did these things each day and what his day looked like, and I was like, oh, I can't quite remember what it was. But I was like, that's very interesting that you do it that way. Why Why carry it out that way? And he's like, oh, I don't know. That's just the way it's always happened. This is what the older fellas told me to do. This is how we do it. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about there's these recommendations and clear evidence that suggests that things need to be done differently, yet you're hearing that, that oh, we'll just do it because this is how it's done. So, um, yeah, I think one of the tasks I was given was to go through the... I don't think I know. One of the tasks I was given was to go through the 339 recommendations. Wow. Um, and then look at how they link into our model of care. Wow. So looking at the recommendations and then that 10 by 20 report, yeah, okay. re- reducing recidivism by 10% by 2020, mm. we were sort of getting an argument that if you implement our model of care, you will address like these recommendations from the Royal Commission. You These will support these policies in your 10 by 20 report. Wow. Um, <clears throat> that was a, an amazing uh, task to carry out, just to read what some of the recommendations were. Mm. Um, and there were some, some really obvious things. <clears throat> and then, like, some stuff around ensuring people have transport and that, you know, programs to initiate driver's ed stuff was occurring. And I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder where we could have used that. So, <laughs> Can't think of any examples. No, no, huh? no, no idea. Um, but uh, I think I'll just share with you a couple of the the recommendations from the Royal Commission that were being addressed from our model of care. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aboriginal people should be held in a prison site close to family members, or if not possible, funding be made available to transport to transport family members to visit. Wow. Okay. So 
there were so many cases of people from Central Australia who were incarcerated in Port Lincoln or Mount Gambier or um, you know, so far away from country and so far away from family and we're talking about the grief and the loss and all that sort of stuff that is in, uh, compounding on their yeah. the, their journey. So, yeah. um, And that still isn't something that really happens at all. Um, funding to provide services, the assistance to... Funding to provide services, assistance to help Aboriginal people to reconnect to families post discharge. Yeah, okay. So here's here's an opportunity. You know, if you've been away for a while, or you know, let's get you back into where you're meant to be. So, wow. Um, establishment of an Aboriginal workforce within prison sites. Yeah, okay. So there's some huge conversations around having an Aboriginal health practitioner based within the the system. Mm. Um, and some sites are really open to that and we're like, we'll take them on, we'll train them and other sites are so resistant and we don't want that person here. So, wow. Um, and I was like, oh, you're just so openly telling me that as I'm, <laughs> I'm here to sort of talk about how you're, how you're doing things. Yeah, like, that's weird. Just, you have no, no shame or no, no hesitancy to speak. No, wow. I'll just write that here. Yeah. Okay. It shows the power so, of that, you know, habitual absolutely. You know, practice and the culture of a place. It's always been done. Yeah. So, um, I think the one thing that sticks out the most for me is, most crucially, the strongest recommendation is government should legislate to enforce the principle that imprisonment should be utilised only as a last resort. So we should be looking at things like alternatives, uh, you know, home detention, you know, education programs, you know, things that you know, enforce some kind of fine, something for the result of, but there should be other things because we know that people, Aboriginal people are being incarcerated at higher rates and often for lesser lesser crimes. So. Yeah, wow. Um, so decades later, we're kind of yeah. still not... Still not there. Yeah. That, and... that was like one of the most frustrating things was to read the recommendations and be like, well, you know, that's pretty easy to implement. Why isn't that there? You yeah. Know? So, um, but since the model of care has come around, there's been some significant shifts yeah. in, in some social policies. As I've mentioned, people were declining appointments with specialists as they were transferred to other locations, um, therefore you know, creating barriers to accessing healthcare services. Uh, but since the model of care, there's been an emphasis on in-reach services, so they are starting to get... Uh, mainly psychologists was the first push, um, and then other people that could come in. So like I know dentistry was something they were talking about. Um Telehealth has become massive in the prison system. Yeah, right. So even before COVID, um, yeah. telehealth became quite the, the preferred method of linking in with people. So if you have to link in with a GP back in Port Augusta or whatever, that's where you're going, yep. they started that communication technique. So Makes sense. Making, making so making some inroads there. Mm. Um, cultural awareness training is increasing. So I did go to a lot of sites where they were like, can you do a cultural awareness session for us right now? And I was like, oh, I'm here to review how things are going. And... No, just do it right uh, now. I was like, oh, uh, what are your questions? And it'll be some massive question that you're like, I can't really put that into a five-minute answer. So um, oh, no. like, we should be doing that. Um, and then we, there was a massive push for Aboriginal health practitioners in the system. Um, okay. This one will take some time to achieve, and I'll yeah. unpack that with you in a minute. But yeah. um, I've certainly offered a few times, would you like to be the health practitioner in this system? And I was like, oh, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, man, that's... That's incredible. Um, yeah, that, that we would still be struggling after decades to implement some of this, like you said, fairly obvious stuff. Yeah, but, but it is really encouraging to hear the things that are working, the things that uh, can and have been changed. Um, 
it's small steps for, for a, a system that's been in place for decades that's done it since the day they opened doors so yeah um, this is quite revolutionary some of this stuff and and with the nurse unit manager overturning the process and having the, the mother released to home detention so yeah. you do hear stories of people doing big things in, yeah. in, in small spaces essentially yeah that's great man yeah. that's a really clear connection as well back to that theme that we keep talking about that making and breaking of social policy so um what can practitioners do then to kind of resist or subvert the, kind of these policy issues in your experience yeah, that, that's absolutely. one example are there yeah. any others that we can think about um i think um what i sort of was talking about here for the purposes of today was the the need to really drive the development of an Aboriginal workforce within the system. So yeah, okay. practitioners, uh, uh, anyone really, has has some work to do to change some of the social policy. Um, and one of them is having an Aboriginal workforce. Um, as I sort of made a bit of a joke to before, I certainly wasn't interested in becoming a practitioner in that space because of some of the things I've seen and heard. Sure, um, yeah. And that would be the case for a health practitioner in the system, you know. So... Um, it's a very complex space for, for Aboriginal people to work in. Mm. Um, there were certainly stories about people who were working as practitioners or correctional officers who were trying to provide a correctional service to family members. So their oh, family members wow. were incarcerated. And so they'd come up and they'd be like, hey, I want to use the phone or can you get me some food or I want this. Like, yeah. I'm your uncle. Like, yeah. make, make this happen. Uh, and so these people were in a situation, not quite an awkward situation of do I help out and meet my family obligation or do I tow the company line? And and so, so many Aboriginal people have just left positions because of that one complex factor. Yeah. Um, there's certainly things around the ALOs had knowledge of like the, the disconnect in the intake assessment, knowing that health assessments weren't being conducted appropriately. So, or things like cultural awareness training wasn't a priority um, and so it's just a really difficult space to work in. So uh, I know that a lot of people say, we need, you know, let's get Aboriginal workforce going, put them in, get an Aboriginal psychiatrist or whatever in, but it's a sounds really, easy. It's, it sounds really easy until you actually look at what that person would have to deal with every day. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, they, um, oh, and then the other thing is that they would see the decline of Aboriginal prisoners with their mental health and their social emotional well-being to a point where they're having a crisis and are being monitored for that so that's knowing that there's early intervention strategies to avoid the mm. whole thing so mm. quite a complex place to um to work in and to just build it and establish a workforce yeah. <clears throat> how do we do that though i think is education is the key um getting everyone on board and understanding what it is we're doing why is it happening uh you know the debts in custody aren't I think that should be occurring. You know, there shouldn't be massive incarceration rates. So um, <clears throat> this will occur by understanding the recommendations, uh, looking at our model of care, looking at the 10 by 20 report, um, and then the Royal Commission's 339 recommendations and starting to see how they can have an impact. And I think most importantly, ask why. You know, why are things done here this way? You know, that young trainee correctional officer could have said, you know, why is it that's the way things have happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, if that's especially not the right way to do things, you know, continuing to just continue that trend because, you know, it's just the way it's always been done and never ask and never increase your own capacity around will continue to enforce the way that things are done now, which which really isn't the right way. Mm. Wow. 
That's great. And so if you're a, a practitioner, you're, you're perhaps studying social work here at Flinders or somewhere else, um, and you are interested in or passionate about um, Aboriginal deaths in custody or even just working more generally in the, the prison system, you really have a responsibility to uh, inform yourself on things like you know, this model of care, mm-hmm. uh, but also the, the Royal Commission and say, well, hang on a second, what? What could be better in this space? Or, yep. or how can we think about these policies differently? Because this space is so clearly dominated by policy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's right in your face. Uh, and you, know, you can't go into a prison without That's having right. to yeah. go yep. against So it's an easy starting point to see the impact of policy in many ways. Correct. Whereas if you're out you know, working in a community service or a health service somewhere you know, in the community, um, it's not always as clear because no, right. it's not as yep. visible. Sure. Uh, but here we can see the impact of uh, that, those recommendations on everyday practice. And if you're going to want to work in this space or make a difference, you kind of really have to know how they work. Uh, much in the same way as what you are talking about before, the individual responsibility on prisons That's in right. the yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. They have to know how it works. Absolutely. So maybe yeah, you yeah. as a practitioner you'll, should arm yourself as well. You'll need to know what's happening. Um, yeah. And those two documents, the model of care and the, re- the recommendations, are a really good starting point. Um, there are certainly services in in the community that you could link into if you're looking at getting into the space, um, like AWS, which is a support service for, for people post-discharge. There's APOS, which is an Aboriginal prisoners support service. Um, and they often have people with lived experience coming in so you can hear stories about what's happening in the space and get a bit of an understanding around what it is you might be going in for, you know. So, Amazing. Yeah. Um, but it's all about increasing capacity and awareness and education and having an understanding around what's been happening and why some things aren't working and really just having the courage to ask questions around what it looks like or how can things be different if it doesn't sit right for you, yeah. knowing that everyone else in the room has done it for decades and that's just how they do it. So yeah, That's right. Absolutely. So you are going to make or break that That's right. Yeah, yeah, you will yeah. make or break the scenario here. Yeah. Nice. That's great. Man, you've been so generous with your time. and I've enjoyed Absolutely. every bit of the conversation. But before you go, I should really ask you what you're working on at the moment. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, cool. So um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm, in, I'm employed as a research associate here in the social work research unit at Flinders Uni. Um, I was working at Samri recently, up until recently, and then uh, took on an opportunity to come here and work in the child protection space. So another system that I've never worked in before. So... Um, needing to increase my understanding of some systems and, and why some things are occurring, but then also having knowledge around understanding why there's overrepresentation in the system um, and what happens at the back end of that for families is some knowledge that I already had. So I was like, it'd be really good to challenge myself in this space um, and learn some stuff as well as making a difference. So the exact thing I'm working on is we're looking at um, creating a new tool across the state that is measuring intervention outcomes in safety and well-being uh, for young children and families who have had contact with the system um, and looking at some of that stuff that we were talking about before around uh, how culture can be used as a protective factor and um, looking at some of the elements we're actually talking about in the model of care whether that's actually being sort of used in the out-of-home care system in terms yeah. of like continuity of care yeah. and, or it could be as big as, you know, is culture being practiced? Are you able to look at your own, you know, who your mob is? You know, do you speak your language? Do you have connections to the community, even though you might be removed from your family at that time? Mm. Asking questions around, you know, 
is it possible to have kinship care networks in place or is it a complete removal and what does that look like? So yeah, great. Uh, at the moment, I'm interviewing people in the community who are practitioners in the space. Uh, I'm about to talk to some people who have lived experience in the system. I'm um, trying to get some elders and just some other service providers as well just to see how things are currently operating. Um, asking some big questions around, you know, what could be different if you, you know, you could be and just asking those questions around how does it work and why does it work that way. And then hopefully by the end of it, we have a, a shiny new tool that can be rolled out for practitioners to use and to ask some of these questions. Great. Uh, it sounds amazing, man. I, I, yeah. um, the connections between like the model of care you've already talked about and, and this space seem quite clear and obvious yeah, and that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. And yeah, the potential to get a, a new bit of policy or recommendation to guide practice and make it better is, is really exciting. Absolutely. It's quite it's quite a humbling process to think you can have your opportunity to play a role and yeah. you know make a difference or uh, you know enable voice to highlight things that are working well and yeah, so as much as uh, I've never worked in the space, there's certainly some underpinning theories and knowledge that they bring and um, it's mostly just about having a go and asking questions, really. So, nice. Yeah. Asking critical asking, questions. Asking oh, questions. man, if that's the only takeaway people get from listening to this, yeah, that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah, ask those critical questions. Ask questions. That's yeah. so good. Oh, man, I think we better wrap up there. Um, but the last thing is, you know, if people wanted to find out more about the project you were just talking about um, or just generally yeah, kind sure. of stalk you online or something, sure, how sure. could they find you? Um, I'm pretty slack with my Twitter account. Um, I started it a while ago and uh, there was a big flurry with it for about a few weeks, usually around presenting at a conference or going to a conference and then nothing. So yep, yep. Um, we'll, I'll, I'll provide the link so they can have a look at the model of care. Perfect. Um, if you want to catch me, you can get me on my email here, luke.campley at flinders.edu.au. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. That's excellent. All right. Thanks, man. I really enjoyed it. I think we will have to talk some more. Absolutely. But, um, Keen as. Thank you for everything you've shared. It's been great. Brilliant. This episode was edited by Ryan Manhire, music by Anthem of Rain, sourced from the freemusicarchive.org. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Ben. If you like the podcast, please like, share, comment, and do all the things.